0: Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, director of Byron Bay Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Tim Costello in conversation with Russell Eldridge, recorded live at the 2015 Byron Bay Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronbaywritersfestival.com.au. Evil lie, in your opinion. Is it deeds or does it exist as an entity? So I, uh, I'm not a dualist, That I
1: believe there's a power of good and a power of evil. I think that dualism actually leads to really scary outcomes, which we've still got in the world, the scapegoating and the ancient curse of Jews, uh, and the placing and projecting power onto people. You know, the thing with Hitler was that he actually said Jews controlled both Soviet Union and the USA, they were to blame for both communism and capitalism. And we Germans are victims at the power of this, this group. Uh, that dualism that can scapegoat particular groups, uh, I, I think, is really dangerous. For me, I believe evil resides both within me and within God, if I can put it like that. I'm a, a monotheist. I, I'm not a dualist. I am a mystery to myself. Uh, And I think most of us are. I see in myself great compassion and I know forgiveness is profoundly important to set me free. And yet often I'm consumed with anger and revenge. Uh, I think lust isn't really, you know, what I should have. And yet lust produced three great children I've got. Uh, I don't like greed and yet I see greed has produced great social entrepreneurs who've employed people and so I think we're always struggling with this mystery of what Lincoln called the good angels and the bad angels. And I think in the world we see the most extraordinary sacrifice and the most extraordinary malevolence. I have seen torture and cruelty and hatred that I simply can't believe. But then I go, there's a shadow in me in certain circumstances where that could be me.
0: Yeah. Well, I was talking with um, the young Somali writer, Abdi Aden, who um, escaped the horrors of um, the civil wars, the, the clan warfare in Somalia, and he, he was as close to a victim as you can get. A young boy on the run in his football gear. That's how quickly he had to get away. And he writes at one point in the book that he's trying to, to see where the problem lies, and his fear... Was that he might become one of those boys who'd pick up an AK forty-seven, and so he was at one end of the spectrum of innocence, contemplating the other the other side. So, do you think, Tim, that this idea of suppressing or overcoming these dark sides of us is a constant thing we have to work out? It's not uh, work at. It's not like we're on a linear projection towards a, a, a plateau of goodness.
1: Yeah, I absolutely. I, I look at my father and his. His question, he's 96, left school at 14, in depression, fought in New Guinea in the war, uh, and uh, his, his question was always, um, life places questions of me, in terms of his faith, God places questions of me, I don't want to be in a depression, I don't want to be in war, but in these circumstances, who am I? How will I live with the... The reality that I have to actually suffer depression and be in war, um, if you think of Viktor Frankl, Frank de Frankl said the same thing. You know, here in the concentration camps, none of us would choose this, but it's as if life has demanded a question of me. What sort of character? How will I still have joy, have hope, practice forgiveness? Um, You know, one of Frankl's great, great statements uh, and I've seen this in my father and the way he's responded to his life, was uh, those of us who survived the concentration camps had a much bigger question. It was survived for what? What is worth living and how do you live it? So um, I'm worried that in this culture the self has become the vehicle for all of our meaning. Uh, I think in answering that question of checks and balances, living for something beyond yourself, whether it's faith, whether it's a mission, whether it's service of others, that people hold you accountable for actually keeps in check evil. Um, if I can say, I've just been in uh, Europe and I was walking down the street and there was a young woman who had a T shirt on in Paris. It said, Me, hard to find, impossible to forget. I thought that's pretty out there. <laughs> the next next young woman had a T-shirt on. Kate is my religion, and I stopped and said, "Is your name Kate?" She said, "Yes." I said, "Oh, so you're your own religion?" She said, "Yes." <laughs> well, there is a great self, uh, you know, yeah. posture there, but I think that vehicle's too fragile. Yeah. I think you've that, got to That sort of comes
0: back to that notion of Ubuntu, which is we are who we are through others. We're not, we're not, we're not islands. But let me just segue from you talked about Victor Frankl, Frankl and the concentration camps. The great Holocaust writer Primo Levi, mm. who was a, a survivor of Auschwitz, although he wasn't, possibly in the end, he committed suicide. He said, Aus, "There was Auschwitz, therefore God cannot exist." But th- you, you contemplated that, but you—it was the 2004 tsunami which gave you a different viewpoint.
1: Yeah. When I got up there within 24 hours, uh, the burials had started, mainly women and children, because men could run faster, climb a tree, hang on. Seeing bodies thrown into open graves, uh, unclaimed, unknown in death, was just really traumatising and nothing prepares you for the smell of bodies. Um, they were being buried so that there wouldn't be spread of disease. And uh, I remember being angry at God and saying, this is wrong if you're all-powerful, all-loving, why this tsunami? And in terms of my own faith, asking those questions. Both in Sri Lanka, where I went first, then Bandai Aceh, where I went a few weeks later, um, I was uh, sort of challenged by the Buddhist, Muslim, people who were traumatised, they were suffering, but when I said to them, how will you get going? What, what will you do? Uh, the, the chastising answer that came back to me was, without my faith, I couldn't actually get out of bed and start again. Without my faith, this loss of my loved ones would be the end, but I believe in God, or I believe as they expressed it. And I realised that for me, Uh, I have the luxury of a context where I can ask about faith as an intellectual thing because I I have so many other resources. I have the SES and I have emergency crews and the only resource they had was faith. That was literally the only resource and this was profoundly important and… You know, if I can segue from that from saying I was... When I was in Paris, I I paid my respects to the 12 who were slain at Charlie Hebdo's offices, absolutely terrible. But talking to a young Muslim uh, French woman with a hijab, uh, I was quite struck how she was so profoundly offended by the Charlie Hebdo uh, uh, picture, and she said, ''Is nothing sacred?'' She said, how do I defend to my co-religionists in the Middle East that France is welcoming of French Muslims? They, you know, they, I've, I've been pushed into a corner. So I was again struck with that sense of in this world, you know, we, we mock things maybe or ask the intellectual questions too lightly when actually it is
0: the only resource many people have. Yeah. So you as a person of Christian faith... Um, when you contemplate what Muslim people say, when you have an audience like this, which at my guess is probably largely atheist, and I'll say that because I've lived in this area for th- 35 years and I know a lot of people, but a lot of people uh, may not believe in the, the type of God that you do, but they'll believe in a force of nature, of doing the right thing. Is is that in, to you... Is that the same God, beliefs of people who believe in in living a good life, picking up your litter, looking after the poor? Are they believing in something that you believe in too?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I think uh, atheism, if you look at the figures, is actually on the decline. The uh, growth is I'm spiritual but not religious. Mm -hmm. And that includes lots of Christians too. Um, I I was speaking at Sunday Assembly three weeks ago. That's Church for Atheists uh, in Melbourne. Um, and uh, it's just like a church service. You do a welcome, you take up the offering, you have a sermon, you, you sing, but because everything's got to be rationally and evidence-based. The person leading it said, now, we're singing because science shows us that when you sing, endorphins are released. <laughs> Uh, everything we did had to be rationally proved. Uh, and I, I just said to them, this is fantastic. Uh, thank you for asking me. But, you know, I think you're really looking for post-spirituality atheism, uh, post-atheist spirituality. Um, I, was, I was starting to call them atheists for Christ by the end. and. Uh, um, <laughs> Uh, to, answer, to answer your question, I think uh, Freud's uh, narcissism of small difference is absolutely true of the, the silly fights that go on between those of us in the Judeo-Christian tribe versus the atheist uh, secular tribe. The truth is uh, we here in Australia live out of both the, the Enlightenment story, the first Enlightenment nation ever founded, and a Judeo-Christian story. And rather than going to war about that, uh, we really should ask ourselves, are free societies where scepticism and questioning, which are right at the heart of a free society, able to withstand some of the challenges we're now seeing in particularly fundamentalist societies? There is a major moral challenge uh, about whether we will we will survive. If you read Kaufman's book, Shall the Righteous Inherit the Earth, he says by 2050, Western Europe won't be secular. Because of immigration, and we're doing the same, to maintain our living standards, because we don't want to do the caring and the dirty jobs, the immigrants who are coming are profoundly religious. They're profoundly religious. And we need to actually get over the the sort of narcissism of small difference, thinking it's, you know, Christians like me versus atheists like you that have the big differences. The differences are out there, and I'm not sure we're seeing them and, and really
0: having some discussion about them. Okay. Well, let's talk about an oppressed majority, women. Um, you, you talk about the, the best way to beat poverty is to empower women and you make a point that every nation that has been lifted out of poverty has zero population growth, and you talk about education as a contraceptive. What are the best methods of working to empower women? Uh, Microfinancing? What is it? Because you also lead on to say that by empowering women, we risk subverting cultures, and there's a dilemma.
1: So like the last comment, I think uh, one of the big questions and debates we have to have is uh, around relativism versus believing things are absolutely true. Uh, that's why I was saying, can we, in a questioning skeptic society, actually meet absolutist beliefs? Because if everything is relativist, relativist they, their belief, is their belief, even if it's absolutist. This is actually a big challenge when it comes to women. We in World Vision say, yep, we are disturbing their culture. What right do we have to do that? But we believe in an absolute disposition that human rights are universal, that women are equal to men, end of story. And that is subversive of culture. Particularly because they're patriarchal
0: cultures. And tell, us, tell us that story in the book about the well digging. Do you recall that? Oh one?
1: yeah. So I, uh, I we're in um, northern northwest Pakistan where uh, there'd been an earthquake, sixty thousand dead. Uh, Connie, my co-worker, was only with the women because it's fundamentalist territory, and I'm only with the men. It's where Osama bin Laden recruits, and uh, the men are giving me these gifts and saying, "Wow, World Vision, you." You got there when no one else did. You did the wells because the water was all polluted. Uh, You saved lives. And I came out laden with gifts, Uh, met up with Connie, had been with the women. I said, oh, Connie, we've done a fantastic job. They love us. Look at these gifts. Connie shook her head and said, no, we've done a terrible job. I said, what do you mean? They've been thanking me. She said, I've been with the women. They told me those men you're sitting with who we asked where we should put the wells have never ...carried a drop of water in their lives. The wells are all in the wrong place. <laughs> Being patriarchal in an earthquake... ...you had to get in quickly. The gatekeepers were the men. So, you know, you got to respond quickly. It was... Our uh, hands a bit tied. But we'd got it totally wrong. Totally wrong. Yeah. So, uh, as I write in the book... ...for every dollar a woman earns in the developing world... ...90 cents flows to the kids. For every dollar... A uh, man earns only 40 cents, flows to the kids. Even in poverty, men find a way to blow the money. Uh, gambling and other women. And so microfinance loans, empowering women, but let me finish by saying it is the software, not the hardware. You can do health and water and education, but the real work we do is staying 15 years and relationally challenging the software, attitude of men toward women attitudes of castes toward others, uh, attitudes on corruption. Um, that's, that software which happens in relationship is the real work.
0: Okay, so now doesn't that then crea- raise the question for someone in the work that you do that we should have change, not charity?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The aim is for World Vision to be uh, done out of a job, And I might uh, just give you some encouragement. When I started as CEO of World Vision uh, 11, nearly 12 years ago, 30,000 kids under the age of five died every day of uh, stupid poverty. That's what Bono calls it, stupid poverty. Because it's dirty water and we know how to do clean water. It's not having enough calories, there's enough food in the world for those who are hungry. Uh, Not having medicines uh, for those who are sick and dying. Today, it will be less than 16,000 kids under the age of five that will die. It's gone from 30,000 down to 16,000. And when the world gathers in uh, September in the United Nations, we've had the Millennium Development Goals really focused on halving absolute poverty and dealing with that stupid poverty. When we gather, the audacious goal will be by 2030 to eradicate all absolute poverty, which is quite extraordinary. People say, oh, why would I give to a World Vision or an Oxfam? You know, we're not making any difference. Well, remind them. In 15 years, uh, we have more than halved the number of people dying and aim aim to do it. Mm. So change is absolutely at the heart of it and uh, that's why software is as important as... The donations we give. It's the relationships and changing attitudes.
0: Okay. Let's talk about those about the notion of giving because, you know, something happens like a Nepalese earthquake and uh, this is a kind of audience that starts reaching for their pockets. They don't. Sometimes there's a paralysis. Who do we give to? You know, you get those stories about how the Red Cross was charging too much in admin costs, the McGrath Foundation. People don't always know. I just want to ask you about giving because there's this, Perception that people like Bill Gates are great philanthropists because he gives away billions, but he retains billions. Um, And I read a statistic the other day that there are 85 people in the world, 85, who own more wealth than 3.5 billion people than more than half the world's population. Are they really philanthropists giving away a few billion when they retain? Because I just wanted to give you that quote. About Andrew Carnegie, who said, "A man who dies rich dies disgraced we should a man, a woman should spend the first third of their life getting an education, the second third making as much money as possible, and the final third giving it all away mm-hmm. if you'd answer that and tell us that story about your trip to Nagaland, ah
1: yes. Uh, North India, Nagaland, uh, has been fighting for its independence. I don't know if anyone heard of Nagaland here? A yeah. few of you. Great. High up in the mountains, 40 different tribes still really intact the culture with uh, uh, dances and uh, wonderful tapestry and farming and 40 different languages. So I'm up there. I'm quite struck World Vision works there because there is poverty that... Uh, Um, their culture has these magnificent wraparound cloaks with beautiful embroidery on on them because it's cold. Um, And each colour represents a particular role or status. And the first day I was there, there were people with red. They were the lawgivers with lovely embroidery on it. Then I saw some blue coats and they, I was told, were teachers. And then the second day I uh, saw this gold coat. And it was such a knockout, I said, wow, that's beautiful. What's their role or status? And uh, back came the uh, answer from my Naga World Vision host. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's someone who's thrown a feast of merit. And when I looked puzzled, she said, don't you have feasts of merit in Australia? And I said, I don't know. Tell me what it is. She said, oh, look, in Naga culture, when you become rich, now, rich by Naga standards, we're all here richer than the richest naga, you can choose to throw a feast of merit. It means you throw a feast for the whole village, but it focuses on the poor. And every night you uh, take those bags of rice in your barn and those pigs in your sty and boil them and, and uh, kill them, roast them. People eat, dance, celebrate, tell stories. She said the feast goes one week, two weeks three weeks. It goes as long as it takes to liquidate all your assets. <laughs> then when everything, everything is gone, you're given a gold coat and you start again with nothing. I said, I'm pretty sure we don't have this in Australia. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if Gina Reinhardt gave a feast of Merida, <laughs> our grandchildren would be eating. <laughs>
1: Yes, dear, dear Gina doesn't seem to even believe in trickle-down to her own kids, uh, but, uh, um, but there's a, it's a lovely picture that uh, we brought nothing with us. We take nothing when we leave. The whole point of wealth is to make a difference now. Sure, we'll leave something for our kids, but if you leave too much, you'll ruin them and spoil them. And uh, Bill Gates at one level I really admire, but your figure about 85 uh, people in equal to three billion. Inequality now isn't just a moral issue. Inequality is now an economics issue. It was on the G20 agenda. I got a chance as the head of civil society to talk to Obama and uh, Putin and a few about this. Now the right of center economist says inequality is one of the major barriers to economic growth. It's not just a moral wrong, it is profoundly an obstacle to all of our well-being. And uh, that's why the Naga story, the Feast of Merit story my, my son, who set up a charity fancy that um, has a restaurant in, in uh, Richmond called Feast of Merit, with a, a coat up there. Oh, so
0: uh, if you're ever down in Swan Street, you can go along and see it. There you go. Folks, I'd love to just keep talking, but I want to give you an opportunity for a few questions. We don't have a lot of time, so uh, have you got questions? Um, Can we get a mic over here, please? Is one here and one here? And then we will have to make sure we, yeah, we vacate the tent in five minutes. A quick question, please. Keep your hand up, please. I think. Um, I've got a question. There is a school of thought that thinks that charities, particularly international NGOs, um, are set up not to actually solve the problems that they are set up to solve, because by doing so, they would do themselves out of a job. Very, they have huge structures um, and many, many people working for them. And if they solve poverty or whatever, they won't be in a job. Do you, how do you, what, could you comment on that, um, please? Yeah.
1: You know, Look, uh, people have written books about dead aid and uh, creates dependency. And you look, uh, look at the overheads. If I could just say something about overheads. Uh, in our case at World Vision, it's twenty five percent marketing and general administration. So seventy five cents is going there. When the tsunami hit, our overheads were zero point two percent because people just gave. They were just touched. Overheads is actually a response of trying to keep the message out and. You know, I, I think you're sophisticated enough to know that overheads uh, a, a, and efficiency is not just the same as effectiveness. Mm. Um, if my wife was ill and I needed a doctor, I wouldn't start ringing medical practices and, and, as my first question, say, what's the overheads of this medical practice and choose the one with the lowest overheads. I'd say, what's the survival of patients with this illness? Mm. I don't care what the overheads are. Uh, so... Yeah. It's more the, the, the purpose. So uh, as you heard me say with World Vision, our, our aim is to do ourselves out of a job. Wherever we work, we're a local organisation and uh, it's not about uh, sustaining our role. It's it's actually lifting people up and getting out of the
0: way. There's one more question over here. I think I know you all want to ask Tim stuff. And I, Tim, are you going to go and do some signing afterwards? I guess so, yeah. yeah. Tim will, Tim sign, will be yeah. in the signing tent so you can hit him up.
1: Uh, Tim, um, both Nietzsche and I would agree with your shadow world. I uh, am a great admirer of you and uh, most of what the church does, a lot of what religion does. But the world, the women in particular, are suffering terribly from the fact that many of them have to have multiple children. They can't feed and the children grow up in misery. Why on earth does not the churches of the world, don't the churches of the world support the idea of giving a $20,000 bonus equivalent and a vasectomy or a tube tie simply to help the world population problem, which is also related to food. We're getting 100 million extra people in the world every year.
0: Can, and can, can uh, we stop at yep, Yeah, questions. let me have a go at
1: that. Uh, great question. Firstly, World Vision, though it's a Christian development organisation, absolutely believes in family planning and we hand out condoms and we do all that work. So uh, when you say religion and church, there's some quarters where that's the case. It's not with us. Secondly, uh, your assumption um, is usually that it's because uh, uh, they have so many children that they're poor. It's actually the reverse. They have, uh, be, they, because they're poor, they have so many children. It's a rational choice to have a lot of kids when they've got no social security, no pension, a number of kids to feed you in old age is why you have many. Every time we lift people out of poverty, we move to zero population growth. You only have to think of Singapore and uh, South Korea. And it's, in fact, the number of people in the world we're starting to go isn't so much the issue. It's where they're located, because mm. we're, we're actually not replacing ourselves, neither is Western Europe. These. This is what I was saying earlier about where the immigrants are coming from. So I always say to people, "Yep, believe in family planning, but you deal with the population bomb ticking by actually dealing with poverty. When people are lifted out of poverty, they just stop having kids. That just happens very, very fast."
0: Mm. Folks, we'll have to call it a wrap. So please thank the wonderful Tim Costello. Thank Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Bay Writers Festival 2015. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from Byron Bay Writers Festival on our website byronbaywritersfestival.com.au and our iTunes.